Hello, and welcome again to my study here at Congdon Ministries International. I'm Rob Congdon, Director of CMI. Thank you for joining me as I begin our series, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. This program will examine the doctrine of total human depravity. See, understanding the complexities of various systems of theology can be very challenging. Therefore, I'm going to offer you what I believe is an appropriate analogy that might be helpful to our understanding. Many years ago, as a preteen, I needed a new suit for church. My father accompanied me to the local clothing store to purchase one. When the salesman asked what size I was, I told him I wasn't sure. I didn't have the least idea. He showed me several suits of varying size that he thought would fit me. After a great deal of time and no satisfactory fit, the salesman impatiently declared to me, you're not average, you need a tailor. Well, I was shocked because I thought that I was a typical 12-year-old, but now I figured that something must be wrong with me. My dad explained, though, what he really meant. I did not fit into the clothing industry's standard sizes that are designed to accommodate a variety of body types within, though, a very limited number of sizes and would require minimal alteration. There was nothing wrong with me. I just needed to find a store that would alter the right size to fit me. Now, I soon learned that the standard size concept applied to more than just clothing. Upon entering high school, I met Christians from several churches. As we talked, they would invariably ask me what church I attended. You see, they wanted to size me up as a Christian. This was not mere small talk. It was an attempt to see if I fit within their size of Christianity. Like a suit coat with a standard size and sleeve length, there were two size designations within Protestant Christianity. The first suit size refers to a particular system of theology, and the second, the sleeve size, if you will, refers to the type of church within that system. At that time, my system was Calvinism and my church was Presbyterian. Now, it's long been assumed that there are only two sizes to choose from within Protestantism, either Arminianism or Calvinism, which is often called Reformed theology. Both systems were developed during the time of the Reformation and represent opposing theological viewpoints or systems for interpreting the Bible. You see, a system of theology is man's attempt to systematize the doctrines of God in an orderly fashion. This not only facilitates the study of theology, but also establishes a foundational approach for the Christian life. Various systems of theology could be compared to various suits of clothes. Whether we realize it or not, every time we read the Bible or listen to a biblical message, the system of theology that we hold to influences our understanding of what we are reading and hearing. The suit each of us wears has gradually been acquired over a period of time through messages, teaching, reading, personal study, conversations, and yes, even the lyrics of hymns and choruses that we sing. While both Calvinism and Arminianism hold to the fundamental Christian teachings concerning 
the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the Holy Spirit, the virgin birth, and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. They soon part ways over the definition and understanding of human depravity, the role of election, the extent of atonement, God's will, and the perseverance or preservation of believers. Now, it wasn't until many years later that I earnestly began seeking to understand these things, to understand what I had been taught earlier so that I could determine if it harmonized with the Bible. For many years, I thought that I understood what Calvin meant by each of his five points of Calvinism. However, the recent re-emphasis on his teaching through the New Calvinist movement has caused me to look even more deeply into what he actually believed, and I have been amazed to discover that I, along with many of my pastor, teacher, friends, and acquaintances, have misunderstood Calvin's original intent that is now being so strongly promoted. I have come to the conclusion that the five points of TULIP, that's the five points of Calvinism called TULIP, as Calvin originally formulated them, do not agree with the teachings of the scripture. Because I did not fully understand Calvin's actual teaching when I first looked into it many years ago, I readily accepted it as the only alternative to Arminianism, since I believed, and still do, that a saved person is eternally secure and they cannot lose his or her salvation. With this conviction, I rejected Arminians' teachings. That teaching that a genuine believer could fall from grace, and I concluded that I must be a Calvinist. Simple. A problem arose, however, when I could not even agree with Calvin's third point in TULIP, the L of limited atonement. For you see, Calvin taught that Christ only atoned for those who would receive him, only atoned the elect for the elect. I believe, and still do, that the Bible supports the doctrine that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he offered atonement to every human individual throughout history. You see, he offered atonement to every individual. In John 3.16, I read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Calvin limited the extent of God's love for the world when he reasoned that God's love is extended only to the pre-chosen, elect individuals. And Calvin said, and I quote, For as God hates sin, he can only love those whom he justifies. End quote. See, apparently Calvin rejected the concept of loving the sinner while hating the sin. If Christ died for only a limited, select number, then how could he offer his salvation to whomsoever believeth? How could that offer be genuine? The words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, suggest no such limitation. Following Calvin's reasoning, a noted Calvinist of today argues that John 3.16 is supposed to teach that God so loved everyone in the world that he gave his only son to provide them an opportunity to be saved by faith. Now, that he says that's what people who teach on 316, that's what I'm teaching. He says now, such love on God's part would be a refinement of cruelty. And I'm quoting now, offering a gift of life to a spiritual corpse, a, a brilliant sunset to a blind man, a reward to a legless cripple, if he could only come and get it, are horrible mockeries, says this Calvinist. You see, this argument is based on an erroneous understanding of unregenerate humanity's spiritual blindness or deadness, as well also as God's means of breaking through this barrier to the human heart and will with the offer of salvation.
In Calvin's words, it is total human depravity that is the problem with man. Well, since I had already rejected limited atonement, I was a four-point Calvinist. But then I also had a problem when I started studying Calvinism's total human depravity teaching. Now, if I did not agree with Calvin, my theological suit would not fit. And then I'd have to modify it further to become a three-point Calvinist. I soon would learn that my problem, my alteration, if you will, of my suit size was even more complex than I thought. For today's new Calvinists believe that each of the five points of Calvinism are inextricably interwoven. According to New Calvinist elder statesman John Piper, and I quote, the doctrines of grace, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of saints are the warp and woof of the biblical gospel that so many saints have cherished for centuries. End quote. Clearly, if he's right that Calvin's five-point system of theology defines the true gospel, we should not stray from it. But if, in fact, Calvin's five-point system relates to and defines the gospel differently than God's word indicates, we must flee from that system and not merely try to make a slight alteration to fit. According to David Cloud, Calvinism, and I quote, touches some of the most important points of biblical truth and affects how Christians perceive the gospel and the very person of God, end quote. Since this is undoubtedly true, it's crucial that we correctly understand the five primary doctrines that relate to the gospel. Now, for a more thorough explanation of New Calvinism's gospel, see my booklet, New Calvinism's Upside-Down Gospel, available through our website. So, after further study, it began to dawn on me that the real problem was not so much with the terms used to identify the five major doctrines of Calvinist Reformed theology, but with the definitions attached to them. I realized that although God's word is simple enough for a child to understand in terms of salvation, the deeper doctrinal truths require prayer and earnest comparative study of God's word. Using the basic hermeneutic of comparing Scripture with Scripture, uh, we find that in 1 Corinthians 2.13 is the principle, you and I are able to define theological terms with precision. As I compared Scripture with Scripture, I became increasingly uncomfortable, if you will, with my theological suit of Calvinism. As a result of my study, I realized the Bible does not agree with any of Calvin's five primary doctrines as he defined them. As a consequence, I came to the conclusion that my initial understanding of four-point Calvinism was not really an alteration of Calvin's five points, but was in fact based on what I assumed he meant by each of the four points. As I talked with other four-pointers, I found that many of them also hold to the Bible's definitions and are surprised to learn that their biblically-based definitions disagree with Calvinist Reformed theology and with today's New Calvinism. You see, they, like me, had been assuming that the definitions of Calvin and the Reformers are the same as the definitions they had derived from the Scriptures. Like me, they had merely accepted the title of four-point Calvinist because, you see, they believed it to be an acceptable alteration within the standard two systems of theology. I then realized that my size was not merely an alteration of Calvinism, but was actually another size altogether. I really did not need a tailor. I just needed the biblical definitions for the five points. I have found my size today. I'm a Biblicist. 
obviously in this class. We can't begin to touch on all four points in any degree of uh, definition. But since the key to all four points is the concept of total human depravity, that's the area we're going to focus upon. For if we show that Calvin based his conclusions upon total human depravity, his entire system then collapses like a pile of dominoes. Thinking of a series of dominoes, if that first domino starts tipping over, they all go with it. That first domino in Calvinism is the tea of tulip, total human depravity. It is its first and primary point in Calvin's system of theology. And each of the following four points are inevitable conclusions that are derived from it. I remind you again, if Calvin's total depravity is wrong, the whole system collapses. I originally thought that a comparison between my biblical definition and Calvin's definition of depravity would reveal total agreement. Thus, I sought to reaffirm this by comparing my definition of human depravity with Calvin's. Any differences I discovered would be resolved by simply comparing these definitions with the scriptures. You see, my definition of human depravity is Human depravity is the state or condition of mankind since Adam's fall from the original state of innocence. As a consequence of his disobedience or sin, all of his descendants have inherited his sin nature. Now I base this on Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 3 verses 10 and 23 and Genesis 3. In fact, in Romans 3.23, we read, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So far, so good. This means that all individuals are born spiritually dead and exist in a totally unrighteous condition, as we're told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22. You see, all of us have inherited a fallen and corrupt nation and a heart that is blinded to truth, according to Romans 3.10. Not only are we separated and alienated from God, but we are also at enmity with him, according to Ephesians 4.18 and Colossians 1.21. Before salvation, we have no natural love for the Creator or ability to please him. Now, there are many verses that support that concept. You'll see them on the accompanying chart. In this state, a human individual is totally incapable of changing his condition or of saving himself from the just, eternal punishment for his sins apart from the saving grace of God. Put simply, human depravity separates us from God because we are, in Ephesians 2 verse 1's words, dead in trespasses and sins and are by nature, verse 3, the children of wrath. You see, in this hopeless condition, the individual is required to pay his or her penalty for their personal sins by being separated from God for eternity in a place called hell. For the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. When we look in the Old Testament in Isaiah and Jeremiah and compare it with Romans 3 and 1 Corinthians 2, when we consider all these, it's clear that a fallen man is totally incapable of reconciling himself to God. Hence, his only hope for salvation is for God to provide the means of his reconciliation. Put simply, human depravity may be pictured in this way. Spiritually dead, unable to reconcile to God, equals human depravity. Spiritually dead, unable to reconcile himself to God, is the human state of depravity. Now, a just and holy God couldn't provide reconciliation for humanity by overlooking it or simply writing it off. You see, in the spiritual realm, you can't do that because God is too holy to allow it. 
Furthermore, the magnitude of our sins is an affront to his absolute holiness. On this, Calvin and I agreed. We also agree that it is God who enables spiritually dead individuals to come alive spiritually. You see, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Now, I'm going to give you a literal translation of the Greek. It's just slightly different than in the authorized version. And you, being dead with reference to your trespasses and sins, he made alive. And you, being dead with reference to your trespasses and sins, he, God, made alive. Again, that's a literal translation of Ephesians 2.1. Notice very carefully. And don't put more words into this verse than it says. Paul doesn't say in this verse how God gives spiritual life, merely that he makes it possible to have spiritual life. It doesn't speak of the method or the means here that allows an individual to be quickened or to be made spiritually alive. It merely says that a depraved individual combined with God's action, which is undefined, will bring restoration, salvation, reconciliation, or spiritual life. As we'll see later, Calvinists define God's action differently than the Bible does. The key difference centers on how God overcomes the spiritual deadness of depraved individuals. Human depravity means that all who are born physically start life and continue that life in a depraved spiritual condition unless released from the sentence by a new spiritual birth, which we call biblically regeneration. Furthermore, humanity's depraved condition has the potential to cause the individual to commit all types of evil throughout his or her lifetime. However, this doesn't mean that every sinner is devoid of all qualities pleasing to men, that he commits or is prone to commit every form of sin, or that he is bitterly opposed to God as it is possible for him to be. No, 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 no. It was Adam's fall that brought not only spiritual death upon humanity, but physical death as well. Now, the Bible clearly states in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. In 1 Corinthians 15.22, for as in Adam all die. In Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed unto men once to die. That's what I believed, and I thought that Calvinists held to as well. However, I was surprised to discover a significant difference in our definitions when I looked into the formalized statement of their belief systems. Perhaps the best known statement of Calvinist total human depravity is found in the Westminster Confession. As I read it, up to a specific point, it is in total agreement with my definition. But of course, their language was more flowery than mine, having been written centuries ago. But then as I look in this Westminster Confession and continue to read, I read, and I quote, Man, by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether adverse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself, no problem there, or to prepare himself thereunto, end quote. When I first heard this as a young teen, I assumed it meant that God's grace provided what human individuals are unable to do for themselves. That is, that God sent his Son to accomplish mankind's redemption through his substitutionary death, burial, and resurrection. Thereby he enabled God to offer salvation to all humanity, to whomsoever will. In other words, all it meant was that God made salvation possible. But each of us had to accept that gift 
that God made possible. Why well, I, I read in John 1.12, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Many years later, though, upon further investigation of Calvin's teaching on human depravity, I was given quite a different view. In fact, I was taken aback to discover what actually what Calvin actually means by the term total human depravity. You see, the Calvinist doctrine of total human depravity does not merely mean that the sinner has no righteousness of his own or that his heart is depraved. It means also that his will is in bondage to sin in such a fashion that he is unable to believe the gospel. As such, faith isn't possible. You see, now, interestingly, Calvinists and I do agree that salvation of individuals is not accomplished through human efforts or works. For Ephesians 2.9 clearly says, not of works lest any man should boast. You see, so baptism, church membership, being good, more good than bad, uh, is sufficient works to earn salvation. We, we all rule that out. We don't even consider that. Where we dramatically divide is over the issue of the individual's ability or inability to exercise faith in response to hearing the gospel proclaimed through God's word and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. I quickly learned that there is a significant difference in my definition of human depravity and Calvin's definition of what he calls total human depravity. That difference centers upon the meaning of dead in trespasses and sin. You see, foundational to Calvin's total human depravity is the definition of what he means by dead in trespasses and sin. Therefore, we need to study what does the word dead mean in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. The deciding factor between Biblicism and Calvinism with regard to human depravity may be better clarified and resolved by understanding what is meant by the phrase, and ye hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sin. This is found in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. You see, it is upon this verse that Calvinists add the modifier total to the concept of human depravity. You see, they do this because they believe the inherent sin nature inflicts every part of our being and not the body just alone. Not the feelings just alone. But flesh, spirit, mind, emotions, desire, motives, and will together. Lorraine Botner, a leading Calvinist of the past, and he said, and I quote, If a man were dead in a natural and physical sense, it would at once be readily granted that there is no further possibility of that man being able to perform any physical actions. A corpse cannot act in any way whatever, and that man would be reckoned to have taken leave of his senses who asserts that it could. If a man is dead spiritually, therefore, it is surely equally evident that he is unable to perform any spiritual actions. You see, this interpretation, this clear evident conclusion, agrees with the Westminster Confession. It reinforces the idea that man is not only unrighteous, but that he is totally incapable of making any decision or response in regard to the offer of salvation. John Piper, again, the elder statesman of New Calvinism, he defines spiritual death as the state of being, and I quote, incapable of any life with God before salvation. Our hearts were like a stone toward God, and he quotes Ephesians 4.18 and Ezekiel 38.26. You see, his simile of an inanimate stone declares that 
the sinner is dead, blind, and deaf, and I'm quoting him, to the things of God. His heart is deceitful and desperately corrupt. His will is not free. It is bondage to his evil nature. Therefore, he will not, indeed, he cannot choose good over evil in the spiritual realm. End quote. For the Calvinists, total human depravity defines spiritual death as total inability to respond to any external spiritual stimulus, including God's Word, the Bible. Did you get that? They're incapable of responding to anything, even the Bible. For a Calvinist, spiritual response is only possible after an external act of God brought upon a human being that act called regeneration. In other words, Calvinists contend that since faith is a response of a living individual, regeneration or the spiritual birth must precede faith. Only regeneration, apart from faith, can break through to the dead stone or corpse and give life. Calvinist Arthur Pink explained this doctrine as follows. Faith is not the cause of a new birth, but the consequence of it. Uh, regeneration, then faith. Representing many Calvinists, Pink asserted, and I quote, the unregenerate are spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins. Then it follows that faith from them is impossible, for a dead man cannot believe anything. Close quote. Prevalent throughout Calvinism is the concept that spiritual death is the state of being inanimate, stone-like, and therefore incapable of any response. John MacArthur echoes this when he notes, regeneration logically must proceed faith. You see, here is our key to resolving our differences with Calvinists. It is to determine the biblical definition of death. Is death the inanimate state incapable of response or does it mean something else? A careful examination of biblical passages relating to death, however, reveals a decidedly different definition of or understanding of what it means to be dead a definition that stands in stark contrast to the Calvinist's definition. An inductive Bible study of the words for death reject the commonly held idea that death is simply to mean the opposite of living or the absence of life or the stone-like condition so often described by the Calvinist. This is a limited definition of death. We do find that as we look at the Bible and we see about death, we find three limits, if you will, about death. Firstly, the Bible only limits death to the physical beings and not to angels, to humans. Secondly, with respect to humans, it speaks of two aspects of death, a physical death and a spiritual death. And it refers to the spiritual death in Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6, where it's called the second death, both of which are direct consequence of sin and its wages, as des uh, described in Romans 6.23. It was man's sin in the garden that introduced death into the world and resulted in man's spiritual separation from a perfect and holy God. Third, we can understand this better by first remembering that a total human being, a total human person, if you will, consists of two parts, the physical or material part and the spiritual or immaterial part. We read in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And in James 2, verse 26, For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Now, to keep our focus 
on the meaning of death. Let us not debate whether man consists of two or three parts. Uh, that, that's a fine discussion, but not for this point. It's not going to affect our basic definition of death. So we're going to, at this point, only consider the physical, material part, and the immaterial, spiritual part. Whether you make the spiritual part one or two subparts, that's okay. We're going to focus only on two. Recognizing this, the Bible uses the word death to indicate what happens when an individual dies. In Genesis chapter 35, we read of a separation of the physical, material, and the spiritual, immaterial part of a person. So if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 35. In Genesis 35, we have the death of Rachel during the birth of her son Benjamin. Look in verse 18. And it came to pass, as her soul was departing, for she died. God wants us to know, clearly, she died. That she called his name Benoi, but his father called him Benjamin. Over then in Ecclesiastes 12.7, we learn that the spirit continues to exist and has a destination following this separation or departing. We read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 7. Then shall the dust, the material part of man, return to the earth as it was. And the spirit, the immaterial part, shall return unto God who gave it. You see, here is the same concept of separation. And it continues on into the New Testament using the same idea. For example, when Jesus was dying on the cross, in Luke 23, verse 46, we read, And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thine hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, notice, he gave up the ghost. In each of these verses, the body, the material part of a person, remained in the grave, if you will, on the earth. But their spiritual part, their immaterial part, of a person was separated, departed, and continued their existence. This is clearly taught further in our Lord's own words as Luke relates the conversation of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 verses 19 to 31. In every example of a physical death, we see that physical death is defined as this disillusion or separation of the total person, not just the physical body becoming inanimate. Instead, we see the human person into two components. It's very important to see you are not only you are only complete when you consist of a material and immaterial parts. When a human being, a total human being, has a material and immaterial part, both are important to the total human being. That's why resurrection restores and gives us an eternal material part along with our immaterial part. It's very important to understand. That's the total human being. From therefore, from our study of death, this idea of the splitting at death, or separation as used in the Bible, we see that throughout the concept in the Bible is death indicates a separation of an individual's total being into two parts, the material and the immaterial. It never defines death in the Bible as just a complete state of being unresponsive, inanimate, or stone-like. Any teaching that death is merely the cessation of life and nothing other becomes a suggestion of either soul sleep or a denial of eternal existence. 
Now, having seen this, we must define spiritual death if we are to answer the Calvinists about the method of salvation. Since depravity deals with spiritual death, we are now need to consider what does this mean, spiritual death? My inductive study of death shows a consistency in both the Old and New Testaments that regards the definition of physical and spiritual death for both speak of separation. In physical death, the individual's physical body, this material part, is separated from his spirit or his immaterial part. Now, in spiritual death, the individual's spirit is separate from his creator God. So when Romans 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, it's telling us that the penalty for sin is the separation of the body and the spirit, physical death, as well as the spirit's separation from God, spiritual death. You see, in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam and Eve with bodies that were capable of living and having fellowship with him forever, provided they did not eat the forbidden fruit. In Genesis 2, verse 17, we read, Genesis 2, verse 17, But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. Notice, notice, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Thou shalt surely die. God was warning Adam of both physical and spiritual death in this state. The separation of the spirit from the body and the separation of the total person from God is a consequence of sin. While neither Adam or Eve died physically at the moment they ate the fruit, their bodies did begin a process of physical decay leading to physical death. Their spiritual deaths, however, were immediate. For at this point in time, Adam and his yet unborn descendants died spiritually and became separated from God and forever in need of reconciliation with him. Thus, according to Paul in Ephesians 2.1, And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead with reference, if you will, to your trespasses and sins. But then in verse 5 we read, Even when we were dead spiritually in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, how by grace ye are saved. And in verse 12, That at that time ye were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope, and without God. But Paul concludes in Romans in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 15:23, for as in Adam all died, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now it's interesting as we go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah clearly wrote of this separation or spiritual death. He says in Isaiah 59:2, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. As already discussed, no single human being can ever save himself from the penalty of his own sins, nor can he reconcile himself to God. Every person finds himself in this state, if you will, of total inability. Only Jesus Christ can offer reconciliation through his death on the cross. We read in Hebrews 2.17, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. We have two views of dead in our trespasses and sins now. Biblically, dead is defined as a separation. Calvinistically, 
dead is like a stone, unresponsive to anything. Now, each individual must decide which is right. Accepting Calvinism's stone or corpse analogy for spiritual death eliminates any possibility that mankind has been graciously granted a free will by his all-wise and all-sovereign creator. Now, if the individual does not possess a free will, then of course he or she is incapable of responding by faith to the offer of salvation. Sadly, the Calvinistic stone analogy makes human beings mere robots that are awaiting one of two possible destinies that have been arbitrarily predetermined by an all-controlling God. The one possibility, regeneration and then having eternal life, or condemnation with unending death in hell. On the other hand, if death is the state of being separated from God, that separation may be eliminated through the individual's will as he chooses to believe God's unique provision for salvation, his word. Romans 10.17 teaches, So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Notice, it is the, God is the one that enables a person to be saved and did all the work to pay for the sins. Jesus Christ did it all on the cross and paid for all the sins. Then the human must choose to accept that payment by Jesus Christ and that salvation offered by Jesus Christ. You see, just as God breathed the breath of life into Adam, and Adam became a living soul, Genesis 2, 7, God inspired or God breathed his word, 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16. That word then gives spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead and willingly hear it and believe God's word. The Holy Spirit works in conjunction with the Word to convict the individual of, his truth, of its truthfulness regarding the individual's lost sinful condition, his spiritual need, his need for reconciliation to God, so that he or she may choose to receive or reject God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ, who according to John 16, 8, is the Word of God. Now, certainly I wouldn't question whether a stone can hear or not, but a spiritually dead human being, he, he's not a stone. He is separated from God spiritually. He may well be blind and yet still be capable of responding to sound. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we'll look in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let, let's begin reading in verse 3. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, the God of this world, not the true God, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. So you see, God shines into the heart. That's the convicting power of the word. And we learn more as we go back to John chapter 1. So turn to John chapter 1. Probably you could just say the first verse from memory, but I want us to focus here in on more than just the first verse of John chapter 1. First verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now, move down to verse 12, and we read, But 
as many as received him. That literally means to take or accept him. To make something else one's own is what it means in the Greek. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Wow. Received him. Again, considering these verses, we have the choice between two definitions of death. Calvinism and Biblicism are not the same. One must choose which definition of spiritual death he believes is taught by the Bible. If, as I've said, a person is spiritually dead like an inanimate stone or corpse, then of necessity he must first be regenerated. That means to be born again before he can respond to God. Thus, regeneration must precede faith. However, if a person is spiritually separated from God, he may be blind, but he can still hear the word of God as it is empowered and confirmed by the Holy Spirit. It is then able to break through to the individual spirit like a light shining into the soul and awakening his or her understanding. Each person is then capable of exercising his or her free will to either reject or receive God's offer of salvation. How? By faith alone. It is he or she, if he or she accepts God's offer by faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast, then after this act of faith, it is after this act of faith that the Holy Spirit immediately regenerates the individual. Thus, faith precedes regeneration. Here is a fundamental difference in Calvinism and the Bible. And here is a tool that you can use to ask anybody to determine are they a Calvinist or not. Remember, human depravity and the concept of it, all the other points of Calvinism depend upon it. So here, let's separate them right at this point and find out whether they're a Calvinist or a Biblicist. Ask them, when does regeneration occur? For Calvinism, regeneration precedes faith or their acknowledgement as they use the term. The Bible, faith precedes regeneration. That, that's how you keep it simple. Where does faith and regeneration fit? If regeneration comes first, then faith, they're Calvinist. If faith comes first, then regeneration, they are Biblicist. Peter reiterates this back in 1 Peter. So turn to 1 Peter, if you will. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to begin in verse 25. Excuse me, 23. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23. Being born again, being regenerated, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. By what? The word of God. It's the word of God. Notice, being regenerated, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by, or the method, the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. Now, look at verse 25. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Do you see that? It's through the word of God that regeneration then comes. Now, it's the, in Calvinism, they would teach the Holy Spirit regenerated you first. But you see, that's not what this is saying. Furthermore, it's the Holy Spirit's task to convict individuals through the word of God that they are sinful and separated from God and in need of Christ as the Savior. When people willingly respond to that conviction by believing the word and receiving Christ as Savior by faith, then God immediately causes regeneration. The new birth that Peter says here, the new birth, comes in. So faith precedes regeneration. The word of God, the work of the Holy Spirit, an act of faith brings regeneration.
I would now like to offer a simply stated definition of human depravity. Human depravity is the state of fallen man in a totally unrighteous condition who has a fallen and corrupt nature and heart. And in this state, he is totally unable to save himself. That's it. That's my definition. I believe it's based on the scriptures and the studies that we've conducted into what dead means and what depravity really means. You see, a clear understanding of the doctrine of human depravity merely defines man's state and his or her need of salvation. You see, it just their state that they're in and then the need that results from that state. It doesn't limit or force God to electing individuals to heaven or hell. Instead, it reveals the greatness of our God, his love and his gracious provision of salvation through faith. For God sent his son into the world to save the sinner. A gracious God who desires whosoever will to know of and receive his gift of salvation through his son. Now, I've covered the Calvinist teaching on depravity in some depth because the remaining three points of Calvinism are built on the foundation of total depravity. You see, if you are a stone, you must be elected before you can have faith. If you are to be elected, you must accept the regeneration that's placed into you sometime in your life before you have faith or acknowledge Christ, and you can't resist it. That's what irresistible grace means. You can't resist it. In fact, you can't resist God. Because if you did, you'd be more powerful than God. If you are elected, could not resist it, irresistible, in the first place, then you cannot get out of it forever. Ah, that's the perseverance of the saints. But actually, if you study Calvinism and what he teaches, he teaches that you must keep accumulating good works to prove that you are the elect at the great white throne judgment. You see, according to Calvinism, at the great white throne judgment, you will present the evidence that you were the elect. No, 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 no. Biblically, the great white throne judgment is only for the unsaved, not the saved. Now, their concept there is what makes it the judgment, the day of judgment. They, you see, you really cannot know then for sure if you're Calvinist that you are the elect until the day of judgment. A very well-known Christian made a simple statement that he cannot know for sure that he is saved until that day, until he dies. How sad. That's not assurance. That's not understanding the doctrine of, pers of God's preservation of you according to Jude. I think this is a sad view when you look into Calvinism's actual definitions. You see, if the foundation, total human depravity as they call it, is wrong, then one must question the entire theological system for one premise that leads to another and another and yet another. They're all going to fall if human depravity is not the way they define it, and it isn't. Once I grasped this, it became necessary for me to revise the theological description of myself because I now understood and could not accept the Calvinist teaching. Step by step, I went from a four-point Calvinist to a three-point Calvinist to a two-point Calvinist to a one-point Calvinist. Now I'm a Biblicist. If you want to see how I eliminated the other three points, be sure to get my book, Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. Did I need a tailor? No. I found a suit that needs no alteration, for it fits me. It is one that fits all who will receive Jesus Christ as their Savior, and they will receive him by God's grace and our faith in his word. Please join us again. We'll bring more in our series on Oops, I Thought I Was a Four-Point Calvinist. Until then, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air.